Israeli ground troops have entered Gaza, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the war against Hamas has entered a new phase. What comes next as the war enters its fourth week? For Saturday, October 28th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Former Vice President Mike Pence is ending his campaign for president. Pence made the surprise decision as he struggled to qualify for the next debate. I will never leave the fight for conservative values, and I will never stop fighting to elect principled Republican leaders to every office in the land. We'll also get the latest on former President Donald Trump's week in court. And what's this? Why? It's a conversation about the lasting appeal of the Nightmare Before Christmas. There was not a wrong time of year to be watching the Nightmare Before Christmas. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Israel today intensified its ground operation in Gaza with tanks and infantry by land and strikes from the air and sea. Communications were cut off in the region, leaving more than two million people with little or no contact with the outside world. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant declared that his nation's fight against Hamas had entered what he called the next stage. The Gaza Health Ministry today reports the Palestinian death toll in Gaza over the past three weeks has risen to 7,700. Families of hostages taken in a Hamas attack on Israel three weeks ago met today with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. As NPR's Liz Baker tells us, the urgency has skyrocketed as Israel escalates the fight in Gaza. For weeks, members of the Hostages and Missing Families Forum have been demonstrating outside military headquarters in Tel Aviv with one deceptively simple demand, bring them back. In the two-hour meeting, they urged Netanyahu to agree to a prisoner swap with Hamas in order to get the hostages home as quickly as possible. Over 220 people are estimated to still be held captive in Gaza, which has been under constant bombardment. Hamas claims 50 hostages have already been killed by Israeli airstrikes. In a press conference after the meeting, Netanyahu said he would exhaust every possibility to return the abductees to their families, while emphasizing his top priority of eradicating Hamas. Liz Baker, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Former Vice President Mike Pence is suspending his GOP presidential campaign. Pence told the Republican Jewish Coalition meeting in Las Vegas his decision was effective today. In Lewiston, Maine, State Public Safety Commissioner Michael Sostrick says that mass killing suspect Robert Card was found dead late yesterday on the grounds of a recycling center where he'd recently worked. Police found three guns nearby. One in the car, two on his body. Authorities say the cause was a self-inflicted gunshot. 18 people were killed in the shootings Wednesday night. Two months after the process started, the International Atomic Energy Agency reports the radioactive water release at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan is going as planned. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf reports. A task force from the U.N. nuclear watchdog visited the now-defunct power plant on a four-day mission to essentially make sure that what is actually happening in the release matches up with the comprehensive report the agency issued before it began. The group found that it is, quote, progressing as planned and without any technical concerns. Approximately 4 million gallons of water have been released so far, a small fraction of what has accumulated at the site since a giant tsunami hit the plant and caused a meltdown in 2011. The water has been treated to remove most of the radioactive material, but still contains radioactive tritium. The release, which was strongly opposed by fishing groups and neighboring countries, is expected to take decades. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. More now on the Israeli Prime Minister's announcement that troops are operating inside Gaza in a new phase of the war with Hamas. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton tells CNN he's concerned the escalation in fighting will harm those being held by Hamas. The only way they're going to get these hostages out is through negotiations. Now, that's tough, that's painful, but I just don't see a sort of special forces raid kind of operation that a lot of people would like to imagine that's going to bring these hostages home. Moulton believes these latest developments could lead to a greater risk of a wider regional war. Meanwhile, the Medway family trapped in Gaza say they remain hopeful the U.S. will be able to help them get back to Massachusetts. Abud Okal says the bombings there have intensified. The most noticeable and scariest of all is the sound of missile whistles that uh, you could hear flying over the house. Ocal says he and his wife, along with their one-year-old son, are living in fear. A legal aid group has filed a class action lawsuit to stop the state's shelter system from imposing a cap on families it can serve. Governor Healy says the system is at capacity and they plan to put new families on a wait list. Worcester State University homecoming and family weekend activities are canceled after, after a campus shooting overnight killed one person and wounded another. The Worcester County District Attorney says no students were involved and this was not a random attack. People heading to Salem tonight to celebrate Halloween are being urged not to drive to the Witch City, but rather take public transportation. Mayor Dominic Pangallo estimates crowds of more than 200,000 on this final weekend before the holiday. We have additional police divisions set up uh, throughout the downtown area, so you should be able to quickly find a police officer if you need assistance. And encouraging people, if you're coming in costume, and your costume might involve uh, a weapon as a prop, to leave that weapon at home because it will be confiscated. Roads to downtown Salem are closed, and Halloween revelers can expect partly cloudy skies tonight, temperatures in the 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the war in Gaza has entered a new phase and the war will not end until Hamas is destroyed. The Israeli leader made his remarks the day after Israel expanded its military operations by sending ground troops into the northern part of Gaza. NPR's Greg Myrie was following the Prime Minister's remarks in Tel Aviv and joins us now. Hey, Greg. Hey, Scott. So it sounds like Prime Minister Netanyahu is trying to prepare Israelis for what's coming next. What was his message? So Netanyahu warned Israelis that the war was going to be, as he said, long and difficult. He even called it Israel's second war of independence, uh, the first being a 1984. 1948 war that erupted mm-hmm. when Israel declared statehood and fought several Arab states. Now, the prime minister hasn't been saying a lot publicly, and there, and there was a sense he needed to explain where the military operation was going. Uh, since the Hamas attack on October 7th, uh, Israel has waged uh, three weeks of airstrikes, but now they've sent ground forces into Gaza and they kept them there overnight, uh, though it still appears to be a limited force at this point. Does this mean an invasion is beginning? 
So Netanyahu did not use the word invasion, and he did not say how many ground troops might go in. Mm -hmm. Still, Israel now has a troop presence inside Gaza. We just don't know if that number will remain relatively small or if it'll become a much larger force and and therefore really a full-fledged invasion. Any sense yet how this message is being received in Israel, even though Netanyahu really just finished speaking a few hours ago? So he made this nationwide TV address alongside two key members of his so-called war cabinet. All of them were wearing black shirts, and they echoed each other's remarks about this being a long war and, and the need for Israelis to have patience. One of them, Benny Gantz, said the Israeli leadership would not conduct this war on a timetable. Uh, he also said the government would resist outside pressure. It's already facing that pressure mm-hmm. due to a bombing campaign that's killed thousands of Palestinian civilians. He said, quote, we are going to listen to our friends, but we have to do what's right for us. And then when journalists got to ask questions, they kept pressing Netanyahu on whether he would accept responsibility for that Hamas massacre. Uh, Netanyahu Netanyahu called it a horrible failure, but said it would have to be investigated after the war. And in general, Scott, it's fair to say Israelis are united behind the war effort, but a lot of blame is being directed at Netanyahu. So there are troops going into Gaza at this point, though we still don't know how many, how widespread that is. But Hamas is still holding more than 200 hostages. Any sense uh, whether this, this new phase endangers them? Yeah, this is going to be a huge challenge. Uh, Hamas leaders and the hostages are both uh, believed to be deep underground in this network of tunnels the group has built under Gaza. So rescuing the hostages looks to be a a monumental task. We should note there are behind-the-scenes negotiations uh, still ongoing so that they may not have to be rescued. They could be negotiated uh, to freedom. But Netanyahu is really facing pressure from relatives of the hostages. In fact, a group of them met with Netanyahu and his war cabinet just before he made his speech on TV. Uh, the, the group said that the government shouldn't take action that endangers the hostages. What is the latest on the conditions inside Gaza as far as we can tell at this moment? Yeah, we know that Israel continued with its heavy bombing today, but details are sparse because Gaza has a near total communications blackout. Uh, Cell phones and the Internet went down right around the time of the Israeli ground invasion Friday night. So there's certainly a widespread suspicion that Israel is responsible, but it is not commenting. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thank you so much. Sure thing, Scott. It has been another unprecedented week as far as former President Donald Trump's legal sagas go. And again, we hear that a lot, but it really seems to be the best way to describe a former president being ordered to take the stand in a trial. That was the surprise twist in Trump's New York civil fraud trial on Wednesday. It was one of many dramatic turns in the cases against Donald Trump, who is currently facing four criminal cases in addition to that New York civil case. And by the way, he's running for president again. In this week's installment of Trump on Trial, we are going to talk about all of this, plus the latest in the Georgia and federal election fraud cases he's also facing. I'm joined now by NPR political reporter Jimena Bustillo, as well as Renato Mariotti, a defense attorney and a former federal prosecutor. Hey to both of you. Hey, Scott. So last week, Trump violated a gag order and was fined $5,000 for accusing the judge's law clerk of being a partisan Democrat. And then this week, the judge ruled that Trump violated the gag order again after speaking to the press. And he said uh, a little vaguely that the judge was partisan, along with, quote, the person sitting alongside of him. Jimena, tell us what happened. 
So when the judge heard that this comment had been made, he flagged it. And he was like, I heard that this was said. The Associated Press had written it in a story. Uh, He's like, if that was true, this is likely to be a violation of the gag order. Judge Ngoron asks Trump to come to the stand to answer questions about who he was talking about. And Trump, as well as earlier, his lawyers made the case that he was talking about Michael Cohen, not about the clerk. But at the end of the day, the judge decided that he didn't think what Trump said on the stand under oath was credible, ultimately gave him a $10,000 fine. Let's let's shift gears a little bit. Sticking with the civil case, though, let's talk about Michael Cohen's testimony. We previewed this a little bit last week. A quick refresher for years. Cohen was Trump's lawyer and fixer. He's the person who handled the payment to adult film actress Stormy Daniels for Trump during the 2016 presidential race and just weeks before actual Election Day. It's part of the reason why Cohen went to jail himself for more than a year. And that payment is at the heart of another criminal case against Trump. Uh, Renato, what stood out to you from Cohen's testimony this week? Well, look, it is always a striking thing when a lawyer for someone says that he helped that person commit crimes. And that is a big deal. And as a practical matter, while this is not a criminal trial, essentially, you know, fraud is obviously a criminal offense. It's a very serious offense. And for Michael Cohen to be coming out and saying that is is shocking. That said, I do think, um, despite the fact that Trump doesn't have a very strong legal team here, I do think that the cross-examination of him certainly struck some blows. It could have been better, but the bottom line is that Michael Cohen is not you know, the most credible witness on earth either. Jimena, what jumped out to you from being there in the courtroom as, as these two people who have been attacking each other for years sat in the same courtroom just a few feet away from each other? You know, earlier this week, Cohen did testify that he had to, like, quote, reverse engineer financial statements to depict these big inflated numbers and values that Trump wanted. And when asked by the Trump team if Trump had asked him to do it, he said no. And so the Trump lawyers tried to motion a direct verdict, claiming that Cohen, basically admitting that he was never explicitly asked to do this, was a case close. Um, But the judge denied that motion not once but twice, and that caused Trump to storm out in the middle of proceedings. And Cohen later clarified that he was never explicitly asked to do it, but he described Trump as a mob boss, saying that, you know, he tells you what he wants you to do without specifically telling you. All right, let's shift gears to Georgia, because this week another former Trump lawyer took a plea deal in the Georgia election fraud case. If I knew then what I know now... I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. That was Jenna Ellis pleading guilty to aiding and abetting false statements and writings. Her plea deal, just like Sidney Powell's and Kenneth Cheesebro's last week, among other things, includes testifying at future trials. This is now the fourth co-defendant and third attorney to accept a plea deal. How big of a deal is this in the big picture? I think it's significant because, first of all, you know, this in many ways is the end of a gambit that Kenneth Cheeseboro launched where he demanded a speedy trial. And Sidney Powell jumped on that bandwagon and they were going to have an early trial, essentially forcing the DA to have two trials in the same case and preview her evidence before Trump, um, uh, you know, trial, you know, actually went underway. Um, that came to an end with guilty pleas. And I have to think that while 
uh, certainly the, the punishment was not significant. And so in that regard, it was a good deal for the defendants. Um, this was also a, a win for Fonnie Willis. Yeah, that's Fonnie Willis, the district attorney who's prosecuting this case in Georgia. Renato, one last thing to ask about. We are going to shift one more time to yet another trial. This is the federal January 6th case against Trump. ABC News reported this week that former chief of staff Mark Meadows took a limited immunity deal to testify to the grand jury. One of the things he reportedly said was that Trump was, quote, dishonest to the public on election night which is when, of course, he began claiming he won an election that he lost. I mean, how important is that particular omission to you in the big picture? Uh, I do think it is important because uh, Trump's main defense in the January 6th case in federal court is going to be that he honestly believed that the election was stolen. And so he was actually doing all of this uh, because he was caring forward his honest beliefs and what he did was not a fraud against the United States government at all. Um, however, um, you know, his statements to his own White House chief of staff uh, at that point in time really undercuts that. So I think that's valuable. And I think, you know, Mark Meadows here was walking a very fine line. Essentially, what he got here was what's called use immunity. He got he he's not a flipper. He's not a cooperator against Trump, but he got some limited immunity and he's not charged. But at the same time, he doesn't uh, look like a turncoat against Trump. That's NPR political reporter Jimena Bustillo, who's covering the New York civil trial for NPR, as well as Renato Mariotti, a defense attorney and former federal prosecutor. Thanks so much to both of you. Thanks, Thank Scott. you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, where it's time to place your Thanksgiving order. Fresh turkeys plus sides and desserts made from scratch in their farm kitchen. VolanteFarms.com. And Circle Furniture, offering an upholstery event through October. You can work with interior designers to create a new healthy look for your home. CircleFurniture.com. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. If you're heading out to a Halloween party tonight, expect partly cloudy skies. Temperatures will be in the 50 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app and the Umbrella Arts Center presenting the enigmatic, improvisatory White Rabbit, Red Rabbit with different actors every performance through November 12th. TheUmbrellaArts.org. I'm Luis Chiavoni with these headlines. Israel today intensified its ground operation in Gaza with tanks and infantry by land and strikes from the air and sea. The Gaza Health Ministry today reported the Palestinian death toll in Gaza over the past three weeks has risen to 7,700. Families of hostages taken in a Hamas attack on Israel three weeks ago met today with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, urging him to agree to a prisoner swap with Hamas to get their loved ones home. 
Former Vice President Mike Pence is suspending his GOP presidential campaign. Pence told the Republican Jewish Coalition meeting in Las Vegas his decision is effective today. I'm Luis Chiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Subaru. Subaru has donated more than $51 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 420,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com pets. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Today, former Vice President Mike Pence became the most high-profile Republican candidate yet to drop out of the race for the 2024 GOP nomination. So after much prayer and deliberation, I have decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. Made, Pence made the announcement today while speaking to members of the Republican Jewish Coalition at a leadership summit in Las Vegas. NPR's Sarah McCammon joins us now to talk about it. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Scott. So what can you tell us about why Pence has decided to suspend his campaign? Well, the short answer is he's just not getting much traction. And he acknowledged that today during his speech to the Republican Jewish Coalition. He quoted from the book of Ecclesiastes, which is part of both Jewish and Christian scripture. But the Bible tells us that there's a time for every purpose under heaven. Traveling across the country over the past six months, I came here to say it's become clear to me. This is not my time. And Scott, that's become clear because Pence has struggled in the polls and with donors. And, you know, in spite of having great name recognition with Republicans, he's seen by many in the Republican base as having turned on former President Trump. So why now? Why not wait a little bit longer and see what the actual voters have to say? Well, the challenge for Pence and, of course, for others is that former President Trump continues to take up so much oxygen and that there's a big pool of candidates and Pence is not even looking like a plausible second or third choice for most Republican voters at this point. The Iowa caucuses in mid-January had been seen as his best opportunity to get some momentum. You'll remember Pence was chosen, of course, by Trump as his running mate in 2016, largely because of his appeal to white evangelical voters, lots of those in Iowa. But Pence clearly doesn't see a path here. He is dropping out with still more than two months to go before that first nominating contest in Iowa. What was the pitch that Pence was trying to make over the past few months? Well, he had a difficult needle to thread from the beginning. He was running on his credentials as a former vice president, but he was also, in a very real sense, running away from his relationship with his former boss, Donald Trump. Last month in New Hampshire, Pence delivered a speech warning about what he described as a dangerous populism on the rise in the Republican Party, and he echoed that during his speech today, too. Now, I'm leaving this campaign, but let me promise you, I will never leave the fight for conservative values, and I will never stop fighting to elect principled Republican leaders to every office in the land. So help me God. So there's still this enormous gap between Donald Trump and the other candidates. Any sense what Pence's departure from the race means for the rest of the field? 
Well, the field thinning out is uh, probably good news for people like former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who's been uh, seeing momentum in New Hampshire and doesn't have the same baggage among Republicans who are looking for an alternative to Donald Trump. Pence is, of course, the most notable candidate to drop out so far. Mm-hmm. we got about 30 seconds left, but any any read on, on the, the location of this announcement, the Republican Jewish Coalition in Las Vegas? What was interesting about that decision, that location? Pence took the moment to reiterate his longstanding support for Israel, which, of course, is also the position of the Biden administration. That's a particularly central issue for many evangelicals and certainly would have resonated with this audience, Scott. That's NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thirty years ago this weekend, a film completely out of the ordinary arrived in theaters. And it probably had a lot of moviegoers asking the same question. What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What's this? This was the Nightmare Before Christmas, of course, the story of Pumpkin King Jack Skellington's attempt to take over Christmas. Making Christmas, making Christmas. Snakes and mice get wrapped up so nice with spider legs and pretty bones. The catchy music and lyrics came from Oscar-nominated composer Danny Elfman, and Jack's gleefully ghoulish world came from the mind of Tim Burton, the man responsible for other dark and quirky 90s entertainment like Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice. But with The Nightmare Before Christmas, a lot of fans feel that Burton and director Henry Selnick made a film unlike any other. I think was something that always came across about Tim Burton stuff in that era was that like you could feel it. You you watched Jack walk through the pumpkin patch and you can like feel yourself crunching on pumpkin underneath your feet. Jordan Cruciolo writes about film and is a huge horror film buff. She notes that Nightmare was so unlike any other animated film that Disney had produced at the time that the studio really didn't know what to do with it. I really appreciate now just how incredibly grotesque it is. This is nightmarish and this is terrifying. It didn't seem like it had kids in mind. Disney wound up releasing the movie under Touchstone Pictures, their adult-oriented banner. The film was critically acclaimed, but only a modest success at the box office. Maybe because too many parents were scared away. Todd Lookinland, who built sets for the film, says he could understand. We never thought of it as a kid's movie. But it turns out it is a movie that a lot of kids loved and a lot of kids still love, including my five-year-old son. What do you like about The Nightmare Before Christmas? Um, everything. Yeah? Who's your favorite character? Um, the one that I'm wearing right now. Oh, because you're wearing... Jack Skellington. Because you're wearing Jack Skellington pajamas. And millions of other families have made the film a staple of the Halloween season. To mark the 30th anniversary, Disney has re-released the film in theaters nationwide. To Todd Lookinland, it was clear right from the beginning that this was a special movie. You know, on this movie, every single thing was made by hand. We didn't use computers to build anything. It was all hand-built. Along with that careful crafting, one thing that Todd Lookinland remembers about the production of The Nightmare Before Christmas was its sheer scale. The thing that was exciting as a set builder on this was that there was no rule book. We didn't, we didn't know how to do any of this. We just had to make it up as we went along. Everything had to be very rigid and very durable to last through the animation process. Animators were crawling around on top of these sets to get access to the puppets, and so they had to be very strong, very durable, 
We built hundreds of sets, and in fact, we had to build multiples of many sets. Lookinland remembers the thrill he got when he first started seeing Nightmare Before Christmas merchandise pop up around the holiday. It was kind of surprising at first to start seeing Jack Skellington's face on, you know, like kids' backpacks and stuff. And it was like, wow, that's a Jack Skellington backpack or sweatshirt or something. It's just uh, amazing to me that it's had this, this staying power. Jordan Cruciola remembers The Nightmare Before Christmas, staying in rotation on her family's television growing up. There was not a wrong time of year to be watching The Nightmare Before Christmas. Cruciola writes about film and is also the host of the podcast Feeling Seen. We called her up to talk about The Nightmare Before Christmas's enduring appeal, but we had to start with a very important question. To you, Halloween movie or Christmas movie? For me, this is a Christmas movie. Oh. I think this for me is primarily actually a Christmas movie. Interesting. Yeah, but I mean, I will watch it on Halloween and carve a pumpkin, but there's something about it that just makes me feel Christmas. Would you stand by that and put a 13-foot Jack Skellington on your yard for Christmas? <laughs> I absolutely would. I would put a Home Depot-sized Jack Skellington on my front yard. As he does, Tim Burton was pulling from a wide variety of influences for the look and feel of this film and the sets in, in similar ways of Edward Scissorhands and in a lot of other of his classic works. Some of those influences are deep cuts that I think most viewers probably don't even register or just now probably think about them as Tim Burton-type styles. Right. Can you help us understand what he was trying to do there? In the 90s, we were at like the peak of what we could accomplish with physical, practical, in-camera effects without having jumped over the threshold of high-quality CGI and digital effects. So if it was going to be on screen, it kind of had to be there. It had to be there. It had to be tangible. It had to be real. You had to, you had matte paintings hanging in the background. You had to be able to touch it and see it for the most part. Like, obviously, there was digital effects happening at the time. But it was this incredible era of sort of the most extravagant we could be with practical effects. And you have this time where someone with such an incredible, specific, strange, idiosyncratic visual signature could put his things to life on screen 100, like, almost 100% like within your hands. Like you can feel Tim Burton movies. Let's talk about Jack Skellington for a moment because he is this oh. beloved character. My house is increasingly filled with all types of Jack Skellington paraphernalia and I'm okay with that. <laughs> and he means well, right? Like what he is doing yeah. is earnest. Sandy Claus, in person. What a pleasure to meet you. You don't need to have another worry about Christmas this year. What? 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 Consider this a vacation, Sandy. A reward. It's your turn to take it easy. But, but the There's a counter-argument that he's a pouty emo guy and he's scaring <laughs> kids and being incredibly mean to Santa Claus and to the children he's trying to help. How do you come down on all of that and how do you think Jack Skellington in the end redeems himself and comes out on the positive side of the ledger? You know what, I like, there's, there's such a naivete about his scaring of children. It's something that like, this is what we're here. This is our purpose. This is what we do. And they celebrate it as this wonderful act. And like the community gets so excited about it. This is Halloween. And then like when he takes Santa, like he really thinks he's doing the right thing. And he is truly shocked when he finds out that he's not. To me, Jack's biggest crime is that he has like a mansplaining posture on absolutely everything. 
You know I think this Christmas thing is not as tricky as it seems. And why should they have all the fun? It should belong to anyone. Not anyone, in fact, but me. Why, I could make a Christmas tree. No Jack's sincere belief that he can have Christmas is, like, endearing to me. But Jack's, like, insistence that he can figure out the meaning of Christmas and that he's going to let everyone know what Christmas means. It's like Jack Jack needs to decondition himself from his patriarchal influences to think that he is entitled to absolutely everything. So that is where I have a little hang up with Jack Skellington because he does have that moody, indie, pouty, emo boy thing about him. Yeah. Which is fairly annoying. But when he... Like, when he puts himself on, yes, he goes to correct Christmas. He, like, free Santa, gets him back out there. But when Jack puts himself on the line by going up against Oogie Boogie. Hello, Oogie. Jack, but they said you were dead. You must be double dead. That, to me, is, like, that's the grand heroic gesture, obviously. He's putting himself in harm's way. Jack's not outsourcing solving the problem to somebody else. If one thing Jack Skellington can be credited for throughout the movie, it's that if he sees a problem, he is going to fix it himself. He's not going to pawn it off on other people. He is an individual of personal responsibility. So I do believe that through um, empathy and understanding and conversation, Jack can get away from his tendency to think that the whole world is just, like, his little goodie bag that he gets to pick through. These are all good points, but in fairness, the entire town does treat him like he's the most important person in the world. <laughs> you know, like, like that is the first no. 20 minutes he, of the movie. <laughs> he is such a product of hero worship. We see how this man has become who he is. And, you know, I think there's a vital lesson there for everybody in seeing like, listen, when you when you treat celebrity like they're beyond consequence, they will behave like they are beyond consequence. Last thing I'm wondering what you think about, and I guess this is going to be a leading mm. question. There have been so mm. many movies or shows that I loved that have been rebooted in one way or another, and the reboot just leaves me cold, and I'm sad it yeah. didn't happen. Every once in a while, that's not the case. But do you think there would be anything to gain from some sort of reimagining or rebooting of this film? I have a little, like, twinge of concern that, like, sort of a a modern vernacular would sort of... Like, I don't want to hear Jack Skellington say, like, so that's a thing. Like, I don't want to hear that. But, like, even that, I would be willing to, like, let go, let God, and accept that, you know, social vernacular more has changed with time. If this were to be redone, it could, it, it has to be. It has to be the claymation. It can't be 3D animation. It can't be even the most gorgeous thing that Pixar could render and put in front of us. It has to be this. Like, there's something about the macabre, um grossness um of so much of of what comes up in front of you in in nightmare before christmas that like the i would accept it and be so curious to see what a filmmaker would do with a different interpretation of it as long as it was still done in the same style of animation okay. you've got to have to me that's the make or break i will i will truly be open-minded to anything else but that has to stay Jordan Cruciola, writer and host of the podcast Feeling Seen. I love talking Nightmare Before Christmas with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. All right. So let's imagine you're in that place that I really need a new job place. Maybe you're sitting on your couch, staring blankly at a wall, or lying awake in bed, panic scrolling through job listings. 
Cynthia Pong has something to say to you. It can and will feel like a slog sometimes. It can feel hopeless, but the truth is that you can ask for help. You are resilient. You do have a ton of resources. Pong is the founder and CEO of the career coaching firm Embrace Change, and she's all about making a plan. She says, first of all, you don't want to just blast out your resume in response to every job listing you see. Because you probably are going to be spinning your wheels for the most part and wasting a lot of valuable energy and time. Instead, she recommends that you spend 70 to 80 percent of your job search networking and the rest submitting applications. It's way more powerful to apply to a job when someone has explicitly asked you to apply for it, um, or at least is like, yeah, I'll, I'll tell so-and-so to keep an eye out for your application. Also, Pong says to keep yourself on task, set some performance goals. Those are goals that are focused on what's in your control. So a performance goal could be, I'm going to reach out to 20 people this week for informational interviews. Keep in mind, you won't hear back from everybody. And that's also okay. No need to internalize or personalize that as rejection. It's literally a numbers game. But if you reach out to, you know, 20 people, you might hear back from 8 to 12. And out of those 8 to 12, you might set up two to four coffee chats. And that's all you need. You can also set goals for how many applications to submit a week or how many networking events to attend. Now, when all this goes well and you get to an interview, go in there as an equal. Don't think of yourself as desperate and maintain your composure. And in that place of composure, it's not like you're trying to have power over the other person or you're not letting them have power over you. And instead, it's about let's have a conversation. They're looking for someone to solve a problem or fill a role. Does my experience and what I bring to the table match up with the problem or the role that they're trying to fill? Then you send your thank you email a couple hours later. You know, hi, so great to meet you. I loved talking to you about XYZ. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. Bye. And you see what happens. And look, you might not get this job. And we can't tell you how long your job search is going to take. But it will end at some point. And you, this will not be the hardest thing that you've had to go through. Like, I really feel that genuinely for the vast majority of people. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. That was Mariel Segarra of NPR's Life Kit talking about the struggles of the job search. You can find more life hacks and tips at npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News. 
Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com. And Sony Pictures Classics, The Persian Version, a new comedy that celebrates cultural differences as a young woman's secret is revealed to her eccentric family in theaters now. I'm Luis Chiavone with these headlines. In Lewiston, Maine, authorities say mass-killing suspect Robert Card was found dead late yesterday on the grounds of a recycling center where he had recently worked. The cause was a self-inflicted gunshot. 18 people died in the shootings on Wednesday night. In Egypt, at least 32 people died on a highway linking Cairo and the Mediterranean city of Alexandria. The cause was a multi-car pileup in dense fog involving a passenger bus and other vehicles. Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas, is the scene tonight of Game 2 of the World Series between the Texas Rangers and Arizona Diamondbacks. Texas won yesterday's opener 6-5 in 11 innings. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Israel has intensified its bombing campaign and ground maneuvers in Gaza. On Friday night, a communications blackout and heavy artillery bombardment added to growing concerns by aid groups about the humanitarian crisis there. Israel's stated goal of removing the militant group Hamas from power in Gaza raises questions about the future of Palestinian leadership. Mahmoud Abbas is the president of the Palestinian Authority, the governing body that exercises partial control over the West Bank. Abbas is a member of the Fatah Party, a group that has had ongoing conflict with Hamas. And to talk more about all of this, we are joined by Grant Rumley. He's the co-author of The Last Palestinian, the Rise and Reign of Mahmoud Abbas. And he joins us now. Thanks for talking with us, Grant. Thanks for having me. So help us understand the current political relationship between Hamas and Fatah and why it matters here. Well, they are effectively split and split because of a civil war that they fought in 2007 when uh, Abbas and Yasser Arafat, the leader of, of the PLO and Fatah in the 90s, decided to enter into negotiations with Israel under the Oslo Accords and establish the Palestinian Authority. They're 
was one major Palestinian entity that was against that, and it was Hamas, which uh, remained pledged to the eradication of the state of Israel. And so that really came to a head in 2006 when they had elections, and then in 2007 when attempts to sort of govern together failed, and they had a brief but bloody civil war in which Hamas expelled Fatah and the Palestinian Authority from the Gaza Strip. So the relationship was was pretty severed at that point. So has this recent conflict affected it at all, or was it so bad to begin with that that really there hasn't been a change here? It's always been bad. It's the result of a fundamental divergence uh, of views. And so it really puts Abbas and the Palestinian Authority and Fatah in, in sort of this tough position where they want to try to find some type of middle ground when situations like this happen, but ultimately they fail to do so. So how would you describe Abbas's current position of power? I think this crisis reveals just how weak Abbas and the Palestinian Authority has become. You know, the closest he's gotten to criticizing Hamas after their attacks on Israel was at a phone call with Venezuela's leader Maduro, where he pointedly said that PLO is the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinians, and what Hamas is doing doesn't speak for the Palestinians. But, you know, the backlash was so severe uh, and immediate at home that he had to walk it back. Do you have a sense right now who might be the next logical leader for the Palestinian Authority? Abbas is 87 years old at this point. This is sort of one of the big critiques of Abbas uh, and his tenure as president is that they're you can't easily identify a next generation of leaders underneath him. Um, and in fact, anytime someone would emerge who may, you know, sort of have some charisma or gravitas or potential, you know, he would he would very quickly isolate them and, and sort of push them to the sides, push them to the margins. And so there is no real clear successor here. And that's one of the one of the major issues facing the Palestinians, the Israelis, other countries in the region, the U.S. and, and the international community. What are your biggest questions at this tense moment where we see the conflict escalating? We see more and more of it playing out, not just in Gaza, but the West Bank as well. What are you going to be looking at over the coming weeks? The thing that I'm probably most worried about and, and what I'd be watching most closely is, you know, what is the state of the Palestinian security forces and the security coordination with Israel? For all the criticisms you can throw at Abbas, and, and there are plenty, he has been committed to security and stability in the West Bank and security coordination with Israel. You know, he came to power being the guy within the Palestinian leadership who was against violence and terror. He was campaigning against the Second Intifada and warning the other leaders that this is what would set the movement back. And so if this war is to drag on and if tensions are to rise in the West Bank, you know, that's sort of an issue that could then exacerbate tensions and unfortunately could open up even more uh, tragic events. And so that's probably the issue that I'm most closely concerned about now. That's Grant Rumley, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now let's go to Hart Island, located off the Bronx in New York City. It's America's largest public cemetery. More than a million people have been buried there since 1869, often those who bod whose bodies went unclaimed or were unidentified. Today, we continue a series from radio diaries called The Unmarked Graveyard. Each story untangles the mysteries of people buried on Hart Island, as told by the people they left behind. Neil Harris was last seen in Inwood, New York on December 12th. So many questions, man. So many questions. You can't help but wonder what her life has been. I never went back and I never looked for him again. 
On Hart Island, there are no headstones or plaques, just white posts with numbers on them. And buried in one of those graves is a woman who Ernest Hemingway once called his favorite living writer. Today from Radio Diaries, the story of how a well-known writer's books and body disappeared. Mutual presents... Now we'd like you to meet our guest authors for tonight. The playwright, novelist, and author of Happy Island, Ms. Dawn Powell. Dawn Powell looked on society and she wrote it up. She made fun of millionaires and communists. She was a very smart, tough, sarcastic woman who put all of that into her books. When they got back there, you see, he had opened up and there was a tea room and it was dinner time and they had to have the regular blue plate. She was a truth teller. Women who pointed things out, women who observed things, women who told the truth. Those kind of women scare men. I do think there will come a time when people will realize that she's one of America's greatest writers. Well, Miss Powell, thank you for joining us this evening. But after she died, Dawn Powell was really kind of forgotten. My name is Vicki, and Dawn Powell is my great aunt. When I was a teenager, I read My Home is Far Away, which is about her childhood, growing up in Mount Gilead, Ohio. When she was seven years old, her mother died, and she had to live with a stepmother who was very unkind. Dawn had a secret hiding place for her stories that she wrote, and the stepmother burned her stories. So Dawn went to college and then moved to New York and really never came back. Greenwich Village is recognized as being the center of art and letters in America. Dawn Powell arrived in Greenwich Village in 1918. My name is Tim Page, and I wrote Dawn Powell a biography. My name is Fran Leibowitz. I'm a writer. You know, she came from nowhere. She was no one, all right? But she knew that she was smart enough, good enough to be very good in New York, which is the most competitive place in the world. She met people like Dorothy Parker and Fitzgerald. She knew all of the famous writers. She was very funny, and people liked that, and she liked to drink. So she was out at taverns a lot of the evening, sleeping around and not caring what other people thought. Had best party, had new dress, and was very drunk. Met Floyd Dell at dinner. She started keeping a diary. It touches on her friends. It touches on sights she saw in New York. And the whole city comes alive. I contend that a writer's business is minding other people's business. She wrote for The New Yorker and places like The Saturday Review and Esquire magazine. And she wrote for any place that would pay her. But then she started writing novels about New York, funny books. She had contempt for the rich. She had contempt for any kind of falsity. She's a satirist. She basically thought human beings were silly and frivolous, but she loved them, you know? 
Nowadays, men want a woman to work, but not to be too good at her Why job. Why couldn't the rich mind their own business, invite each other to dinner, and feast on each other's fruity conversation? Men use the term career woman to indicate a girl who made more than he did and who was unforgivably good at her job when he was not able to hold one. Does that seem to you like it couldn't have been written yesterday? Don Powell was incredibly observant. That is the thing that she succeeded at. By this time next year, I will have a fortune, have cut the throats of my best friends, have kicked my inferiors in the pants, and to be loved and respected by all. Perhaps I will be considered a real artist, a positive dreamer, a genius. Dawn Powell's personal life was not easy. She had one child. Today he would be diagnosed as having cerebral palsy and schizophrenic. He got sent to mental hospitals and nursing homes. That was always a sadness, overall sadness, that it was her only son and he needed a lot of care. She saw life as a tough business, as a very tough business. All the very famous women writers were usually ending their stories with a man and a woman falling in love and living happily thereafter. Dawn had seen enough of life to realize, well, sometimes that's the case, but it's not what usually happens in the world. And so that's the way she wrote. But that is not appealing to many people, especially to the critics. Reviewers were really powerful, but she was not beloved by many people in that world. Like Edmund Wilson, a man, by the way, with the nickname Bunny. If Bunny's review had been offset by a powerful, favorable one, the book would have gotten off. It is very discouraging to have someone who actually has told me I'm equal to Sinclair Lewis at his best do me so much genuine damage. I have enough damage done me already, merely by the desire to write and my pleasure in people and strange angles of life. Her last novel, The Golden Spur, was published in 1962. But at this point, she was really starting to get sick. We knew that Dawn was not doing well health-wise. My grandmother, Phyllis, told me that she had trouble eating and she was losing a lot of weight. Letter to Phyllis Powell, March 14, 1964. Dear Phyllis, I am really fascinated by the aging process, even if the victim is me. Somebody told me humans age like trees. Almost overnight, teeth and hair and all age, and you are 50, then with a big clank like a rusty chain, you're 60, and so on. Anyway, they tell me trees do this too. The ring of the age cycle on the trunk shows up the same way, suddenly. Love, Dawn. We went to New York City and visited her. It was in 1964, and I was in high school then. I had a feeling my grandmother thought she'd never see her again after that visit, which is pretty much what happened. It was intestinal cancer. She just shrunk down to less than 100 pounds. She died in St. Luke's Hospital November 14, 1965. After she died, a lot of her books went out of print. And so she was pretty much forgotten. 
she was so unknown that you would go into a bookstore and you'd ask, do you have any Dawn Powell? And they said, I've never even heard of Donald Powell. She was just kind of lost. But then in 1987, Gore Vidal published an article about her in the New York Review of Books. In her lifetime, Powell should have been as widely read as, say, Hemingway or the early Fitzgerald. The fact is that Americans have never been able to deal with wit. Wit, deployed by a woman, is a brutal assault upon nature. That is, man. When Gore wrote this article, a lot of people got interested. I never heard of her until Gore wrote that piece. And I bought whatever books they were. And I kept telling people, you have to read this. Your life will be better for reading this. The last years of her life, Dawn wanted her body donated to science. So it was claimed by Cornell Medical Center. Five years after she died, the hospital had a box of some of her remains left. And they talked to her executor. And she wrote back something saying, we do not wish to claim this. You can do with it what you want. So in any event, in 1970, whatever was left of Dawn was buried out in Hart Island. The family knew nothing about this. My mom told me it was a potter's field, and it was just a place where people were buried who didn't have any money or no family to take care of them. My grandparents would have certainly found a better resting place for her than where she was buried. She is, for better or worse, on Heart Island forever. There are people who say, I want this when I die. This is where I want to be buried. This is the kind of gravestone I want. I think Don Powell was too smart and realistic to care about this. I don't think she would have cared. I just don't. I mean, in a weird way, she might have been pleased in a funny way that the city of New York paid for her burial she loved New York. She told the truth about New York, and I'm not sure she'd want to be anywhere else. There is really one city for everyone, just as there is one major love. New York is my city because I have an investment I can always draw on, a bottomless investment of building up an idea of New York. So no matter what happens here, I have the rock of my dreams of it that nothing can destroy. Many of Don Powell's books are now back in print, and you could say she's even got a bit of a cult following. Powell got a shout-out on the Gilmore Girls TV show a few years ago, and several people have tried turning her books into films. 